point is that we we put too much uh, weight behind planning, and in circumstances when we shouldn't be planning, we still plan because it it feels it feels comfortable. Mm-hmm. Look, the problem the problem that I see with planning is we create these elaborate plans for a world that's probably not going to exist by the time uh, by the time we actually uh, get through our plans. going on everybody thank you so much for joining me on another episode of cut the crap podcast where every single week i'm reading a book i'm condensing that book down to a handful of golden nuggets i'm contacting the author bringing them on the show having a conversation with them about the golden nuggets and i'm bringing that to you every single week just trying to save you a little bit of time now if you've listened to the podcast for a long time and you're a long time listener long time subscriber and you haven't rated or reviewed the show What the hell are you waiting for? Get online, rate and review the show. All I'm asking is that you take five minutes out of your day, rate the show, review the show, whether it's on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever platforms give you the opportunity to rate and review the show, please do that and send me your rating, your review by email. Just take a screen capture of it. Send it to podcast at ryancalajuri.com and I'll make sure you get entered into a draw every single quarter for a brand new prize. Last quarter, we gave away a MacBook Air. This quarter, what I decided to do is once I pull the winner and I figure out who it is, I'm going to send that person an email. I'm going to ask them what they prefer, if they want a Google Home or if they want an Alexa. Whichever one they want, I'm going to go online and buy it and have that shipped directly to them. So pretty easy. Again, thank you so much to everybody who's also followed me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, really appreciate that. Like I said last week, if you're going to follow me on anything, I'm on LinkedIn and probably the most active on LinkedIn. Next, probably Instagram, but I am all over the place. Definitely get online, follow me. All you have to do is look up Ryan Caligiuri everywhere and not to be confused with the two or three other Ryan Caligiuris in the States. Ryan Caligiuri, you'll find me all over the place. Just look for the bald guy with a beard. All right, so this week, what are we talking about? Enough chit-chat. Let's get into it. We're talking to Scott Sonnenschein about his book, Stretch. Unlock the power of less and achieve more than you ever imagined. So this book is your guide to discovering your true creative potential. And the golden nuggets that we talk about today, they'll teach you how to identify the resources, both internal and external, that you need to unlock new possibilities, reach for the stars, and of course, excel at life. Now, Pretty grandiose things that we're talking about here today, but there's some very good takeaways that I want you to definitely um, take note of, put some of these things into practice, and hopefully there's something here that resonates with you that can definitely help you in your career, in your life, and just helping you in general uh, achieve the things you want to achieve in life. So take a listen. Again, this is Scott Sonnenschein's Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. We'll talk to you at the end of the episode, everyone. Enjoy. Scott, how you doing, my friend? Very good, Brian. Yourself? I'm doing very well, very well. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we break into the book, Scott, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and why you ended up writing the book in the first place. Uh, sure. Well, I'm a business school professor here at Rice University in Houston, and I've been here for about 11 years. And my research is on organizational change, but it was very much inspired by time that I spent in Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom and bust during uh, a couple of decades ago. And one of the things that I realized when I was out there is, I mean, these absolutely uh, crazy times, but you saw so many smart, hardworking people with seemingly good ideas blowing through just tons and tons of resources. And there was this great chase. There was this notion that in order to be successful, both in terms of your career and in terms of the business that you were trying to build, you needed to just keep having more and more and more resources. And of course, that worked really well as long as someone was willing to to write a blank check. And as we know from the history of the dot-com boom and bust, uh, the blank checks stopped coming in and a lot of companies had a hard time adapting. And that made me start to question, you know, why are there so many smart, seemingly good companies that struggle with so many resources? Well, at the same time, if you think about the history of innovation and the traditional garage startup, there are these businesses that don't have a lot and seemingly uh, are able to be very successful with, with so little. So that inspired me to go get a PhD in organizational behavior at the University of Michigan and start studying these questions. And that research was the foundation of the book Stretch. We get caught up in this 
I don't know what you want to call it, maybe minutia or just the way things have always been done or what we perceive that we need in order to be successful. And so you challenge a lot of those misconceptions or those ideas that we have. And, you know, I'm talking about it in brief, but maybe what it's best if we just jump right into it. In Golden Nugget number one, you talk about chasing what others have. So it's this idea of chasing what others have, whether it's, you know, your neighbor gets a brand new car and you look at that car and you say, man, I want that car. Or you look at your neighbor's grass and their grass always looks greener than yours. Say, damn it, you know, I, I, I want my grass to be that green. And so we chase these, these status symbols. And, you know, some people look at that and they say, well, that's good. That's good, Ryan. That's good, Scott. You know, I want to chase those symbols because it, it, it makes me a better person. It gives me something to work towards. It gives me something to drive for. My question to you is, what's the problem with chasing like that? And if it is a problem, what's the solution? Yeah, no, great, great question. And of course, it, it's not just chasing in our in our personal lives after the, the grass or the car, but it happens regularly at work too, where we think we need the same type of uh, office size as someone and you go to companies and everyone's counting their, their ceiling tiles in their office <laughs> as a marker of status. They need the same type of budget that another group has. You can't be successful at work if you don't have the same type of title as someone. And so that, that really mm. begins to help us understand what the problem of chasing is, which is first, we feel like in order to be successful, we need fill in the blank, whatever someone else has. And until we have that thing, that item, that amount of money, that resource, we're not able to achieve our goals. So we delay action and then we start directing all of our efforts chasing after these resources, but we're not making any progress on what our goals actually are. We're not actually doing anything. Our goals become displaced. They become so focused on going after these resources that we lose sight of ultimately what it is we're trying to accomplish. Now in Stretch, uh, Stretch is a book that not only uh, uses research to show how we can be more happy in our, in our life and in our, in our work, but also more successful. So it's not, about, it's not about settling and saying, you should tone down your ambitions. You shouldn't try and get a promotion at work, you shouldn't try and be successful. But the way that you do that is very different. And the danger in chasing is it takes us away from the goals that we personally care about. And instead, we start comparing ourselves to other people, and we end up with their goals, not our goals. Mm, very interesting. So there was an example in the book there where, you know, you're saying if, if, if you were working in retail, for example, and retail can be a very difficult thing, you know, let's just say you're working in a clothing company, you're folding clothes all day, and you're an employee, and you might not be very motivated by the work that you do. Um, one thing that you say, you know, if you want to continue to stretch, and you want to continue to grow, pretend you maybe own the place, you know, like pretend you're in control, take control, I own this company. And all of a sudden, you'll start to approach your job with a little bit more vigor, a little bit more energy, you'll own it more. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, so this, this notion of psychological ownership is, is really powerful because it unleashes, I think, the natural potential that we all have to be creative with our resources. But often at work, we go into environments where we're messaged the exact opposite, mm -hmm. where we're not given discretion and we're socialized to use resources in very conventional ways. And of course, when we find ourselves in real or imagined abundance, we have a hard time using resources in different ways. So we have, we have so, much, so many resources around, we're just going to use them in the, the default or traditional ways. What psychological ownership really gives us, it gives us that permission to say, you know what, it's okay to use this resource in an un, unconventional way. It's okay to change it. And I've done a lot of research actually in the, in the retail setting, and one of my, my favorite anecdotes from, from this research is, I was talking to a store manager at a very successful chain of women's apparel, apparel stores, and he's telling me about this really terrible product that he got. It was, this, it was this ugly dress, and his store had lots of inventory to sell, and it wasn't selling, and other, other stores in the chain all across the states had lots of this inventory, and it wasn't selling, and had no idea what to do. And I think a lot of us would resign ourselves to failure and say, this is what the company gave us. Mm. Uh, I'll wait for something better to come hopefully next week, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, eventually this, uh, this uh, dress will go on sale. Well, that's not what he did. What he did is he literally took a pair of scissors, he cut the straps of the dress off, rolled it up, huh. put a tie around it, and made a sign that said beach cover-up. <laughs> and it went from last seller to best seller, and then it got rolled out across the entire chain. And I said, well, wh what would make you do something like this? Because my understanding of retail is uh, that's damaging the goods. You usually <laughs> yeah. get fired for doing something <laughs> like that. 
and he talked very passionately about the the psychological ownership that this company was able to instill through its culture and through its hiring practices. And when we have ownership of our own resources, and unless or this feeling of ownership of our own resources, and unless we're working for ourselves, we don't own what we tend to work with, but we can put ourselves in that mindset. And once we shift into that mindset, it unlocks this amazing creative potential that quite frankly, we all have, we just rarely use. Oh, I think that's beautiful. I really do like that. You know, you go look at the workplace right now and people sort of resign themselves to, well, I'm just a cog in the wheel. No, you're not a cog in the wheel. If you change your mindset, your perspective, how you approach your work, it changes everything. Right? It does change everything. And it might not be as extreme as an example where you shared where, you know, they're cutting up the material, but by just taking better control, you'll start to see different results. You'll start to take different actions. You'll start to feel different about your work. And, you know, people will look at you differently. You might get more responsibility. Good things will happen. Another question for you here. It's, it's about constraints. Now, constraints often when people have them, they look at them as a negative thing. Oh, you know, I don't have enough money. Or I don't have this, Ryan, or this, Scott. I don't have, you know, the the right resources, the right people, the right talents in order to make this happen. So from my own experience, I know that constraints are actually a good thing. And in the book, you talk about a study that references teams that were given strict guidelines and um, budgets. And they actually ended up producing better than the teams that had an unlimited budget and didn't have any set times or, or, or a lot of parameters. Why is it the case? Why is the constraints bring the best out of us? Yeah, well, I think it, 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 it starts by recognizing that to so many people, constraints is a bad word, right? It's a, it's a sign that you, you don't have everything that you need. And it's that type of dangerous mindset that you tend to, you tend to have with, with chasing. But when you embrace constraints, you realize that not only can you work through them, but you can actually work better because of them. And there's a very simple psychological explanation for that. And it's when you imagine or experience abundance, kind of the opposite of constraints, your default is to look at everything around you the same way that everyone else does. Mm. So you have a hard time being more creative. But when you experience real, or even if you just think about constraints and then do, do, do something, what happens is you give yourself this license to try and experiment and do things differently. So with an unlimited budget, mm. that actually turns out to be much more harmful to performance because one you feel like you have so many resources around that you end up squandering a lot of those resources why worry about solving the problem when you think that you have so many other chances with with more more resources out there but it also changes the way that you think about what you're working with and you tend to just follow the conventional path and you know best case you end up how everyone else would because you're doing what everyone else is doing but when you have constraints, there's that cliche, but I think it's, it's true, and the research certainly bears it out, that necessity is the mother of invention. And when you create this situation where you feel constrained or you experience constraints, it unlocks this creativity to do new things. And this, ha- this happens not only in humans, but there's been uh, studies even of rats that have shown the same type of behavior, that when you constrain what they're doing, they find more novel and more unique solutions. Mm, very true. And again, I can speak to that directly where on a number of innovation teams that I've worked on where we're developing new products or new services, it, the teams that were given very tight constraints, it really forced them to be more creative. It forced them to um, uh, be more critical, be more thoughtful. If the team had very little constraints, again, it, they kind of seemed confused. They didn't quite know what direction to go into. And, it, and I found that when teams were sort of it sounds bad, but when they were given that little box to play in, they ended up coming up with better solutions. And, you know, I could never understand why. And then when I read your book, I was like, this makes sense now. Makes sense. So in Golden Nugget number two, we talk about outside perspective versus the expert perspective. Now, experts, they're sought after all the time for their perspective because, well, they're, they're experts, right? They're smart. We want to hear from experts. But what you're saying, though, is that the outsiders actually have a greater opportunity to drive innovation rather than the experts. So tell us first what an an, uh, outsider is and why is this the case? Why does the outsider bring more innovative ideas than an expert? So an outsider is someone who doesn't have specific experience 
in the domain that you're, you're looking at. Now, in our society, we tend to hold experts for the most part in high esteem, and there's certainly good reason to use experts. So you wouldn't go to your dentist to get your taxes done, and you wouldn't have your accountant pull a tooth for you. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's, definitely, there's definitely a role for, for expertise. But when it comes to solving difficult problems, and innovation is one of those difficult problems, what research shows is that it's often people who know the least who are able to contribute the most. So one way of thinking about this is in complex problems like innovation, there are no defined rules out there. With technological changes, things are always moving. So it's really hard to get very adept. It's kind of like a a moving target. When someone has deep expertise and deep knowledge in a specific domain, they get accustomed to using tools and resources in very specific ways, even if what's happening around them is constantly evolving and changing. To kind of put that simply, they they develop a a type of tunnel vision, Hmm. whereas what outsiders are able to do is they can come in and they can look at a problem that experts might be struggling, and they have a very different perspective, and they apply those resources in, in very different ways. So there's been some really fascinating research that's looked at the relationship between how much experience or expertise someone has in a specific domain and how much that actually predicts how well they can perform in that domain. And this research has looked at over a hundred different studies, ten thousand different observation points. So it's a lot of it's a lot of data and the kind of headline from the from the research is very little. Expertise matters very little, especially as we go to less structured, more complex tasks, namely learning and working. There's almost no impact there. There's other research that has looked at research and development laboratories in uh, scientific companies and has looked at a very simple question that you would think, well, why even bother asking this question? It seems so straightforward. How much expertise does a scientist have in a specific domain predict their likelihood to solve a problem in that domain? (laughs) Now, intuitively, you would think the more expertise they have in the domain, the better likely they are to solve a problem. Right. But the research actually finds the exact opposite. <laughs> the more experience you have, the less likely you are to solve the problem and vice versa. So it's those outsiders, those with less experience, who are able to come in and give a completely different perspective, ask the question in different ways, and come up with much better ideas. What a great point. I really love that. And it's, it's, it's a tough one to really grasp because experts, they spend their life, it's their life's work. I mean, they, they spend their entire life learning a specific trade or a specific art or, or, or a science or whatever it is. And they become so adept at it. They know so much about it. So you can't really tell them a whole bunch of stuff about their, their, their craft that they don't already know. And what I've learned too, now we're going back to the innovation thing with product and service development. Because what I've learned is when you put all those people in a room, it's really tough for them to come up with new ideas. And really tough for them to come up with innovative ideas, things that maybe break the status quo because they say, you can't do that because I know too much about it. So it's really funny. In innovation teams, you'll all, all of a sudden get different ideas when you start to incorporate perhaps, you know, if, if you're developing um, a new product, for example, uh, if you include a whole bunch of marketing and salespeople, well, they'll bring a good perspective. But you know what also brings a good perspective? Bring somebody from finance. Bring the administrative assistant. Bring maybe a student from, from high school. Bring somebody from a different industry altogether. You know what you'll find? You'll find that the people that are, as you say, the outsiders, they will bring more novel ideas. They'll ask questions that maybe the experts are afraid to ask or they just don't look at anymore. I'll give you one quick story here in that with Ford, Ford Motors, many years ago when they were looking for a new innovation to come up with a new feature that would make their vehicles more competitive, they indeed brought in an administrative assistant to their innovation team. And as they were coming up with new ideas, they're going through ideation, one of their exercises was, you know, tell me about your weekend. And, you know, maybe that can flush out some sort of concept, some sort of idea. So the administrative assistant was sharing what she was talking about over the weekend. Well, you know, I'm a single mom and, you know, I had my kid and I was carrying groceries and I was pushing, pushing the cart and my hands were full and I was fumbling, looking for my keys in my jacket. It turned out to be in my purse. So I go in my purse. I drop the groceries. My kid's wiggling around. It was so difficult. I open up the trunk. It would just be so damn nice if I could just like wave my foot under the trunk or something and the trunk would open up. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Laughs. 
the engineer in the room looks at the, looks at her and says, you know what? We could probably end up doing that. And so Ford Motors was the first one that came up with the kick trunk where you wave your foot underneath it and opens up the trunk. It was this outsider's perspective. It was this outsider's story that ended up driving one of the, I don't want to say one of the greatest innovations, but a really good innovation that eventually, you know, all, you know, SUVs ended up adopting. And now they all have that that kick trunk or that whatever you want to call the automated lift or, or what have you. But that's just a one example where an outsider can bring a novel perspective. And so as experts, we need to... Um, be aware of that. We need to be humble. We can't be stubborn or stuck in our ways and say, well, we're experts. We know better. No, no, no. You have to change your perspective and allow outsiders to share their, their perspective. Yeah, know. it's a great story. Oh, great so, story, Ryan. Yeah, no, I, I, to me, it's, it's, it's something that just popped into my mind as you were explaining that. But uh, here's something that I get asked a lot, actually. When people are experts in their field, and they're open-minded, they say, listen, Ryan, like, I, I want to bring an outsider's perspective you know, because I know that being an expert in my area, you know, it's not a flaw, but it does maybe close you out to um, different perspectives, different ways of thinking, because you you look at things very black and white because of, of what you know. And they come to me, they say, well, how do I gain some of this outsider's perspective? I actually don't know how to answer that. So if an expert was asking you that and they were on an innovation team and they said, you know, Scott, I want to have more of an outsider's perspective. What can I do to maybe bring a different perspective to myself so that I can be more valuable um, and essentially maybe stretch my mind a little bit to um, to different perspectives, different ways of life. Do you have different strategies or different techniques that people can do to maybe bring this outsider's perspective, to think like an outsider? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the first, of course, line of defense, as you mentioned, is you know, make sure you have these, these diverse teams with both insiders and, and outsiders. But if you are an expert, it doesn't mean you can't develop your own outsiderness. And, you know, it's really simple. What you, what you need to do is you just need to complexify the type of experiences that you have. Steve Jobs had this, uh, you know, great line he used to say where what really separates anyone or me from the, the guy in the street is the bag of experiences that you accumulate. So you need to get outside yourself. So that could mean instead of going to the regular industry conference you go to, go to a conference in a completely different industry. Hmm. Go spend time talking to people who come from different functional backgrounds and different experiences than you, and you can diversify your experiences. And when you diversify your experiences, you're more able to develop this outsiderness, even if you have deep expertise in a, in a given domain. And of course, ultimately, you know, one of the things that you can, you can aim for at work is to be high on both. They don't need to be mutually exclusive. If you can develop core expertise in something, but then dedicate sufficient time to developing your outsiderness by spending time in different places with different people, that can go a long way into making you a greater contributor on those teams. Hmm, great tips. So again, I really like that. Go to different trade associations, uh, different events, reading different books, um, you know, just taking a different knowledge, having conversations with different people, you know, just kind of stepping outside of your box a little bit. That makes perfect sense. I love that. In golden nugget number three, now this is a good one. I really was looking forward to talking to you about this one. We're going to talk a little bit about planning. and Because planning, we all like to plan. Well, maybe not we all, but a lot of people like to plan because it makes us feel safe. But you're saying that it causes us to miss valuable information that's right in front of our face. So we all seem to want to gravitate towards plans because, you know, as you say, they make us feel safe. But by saying that planning is maybe not a great thing because it holds us back, Talk to us a little bit about that because I think there's a lot of people out there who will listen and who might disagree with you on that where it's, it's, it's a very bold point to say, you know, maybe we're planning too much. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, well, for for starters, it's, it's not that you never need to plan. My right. point is that we, we put too much uh, weight behind planning and in circumstances when we shouldn't be planning, we still plan because it, it, feels, it feels comfortable. Mm -hmm. Look, the problem, the problem that I see with planning is – we create these elaborate plans for a world that's probably not going to exist by the time, uh, by the time we actually uh, get through our plan. So if you look at the way that you know, we're strategic, where plans might be the most important in, in business, you think about five-year strategic plans at major corporations, the research shows that there is almost zero correlation between strategic planning and company performance, no matter how you measure it. In fact, some of the studies actually show a negative correlation between planning and performance. And what happens is we develop these plans and we trick ourselves into thinking that the world that we 
invent in these plants is exactly what's going to happen five years from now. And we make all of these assumptions. But then when that world ends up looking differently than what we thought in the plan, we've already committed to the plan. So what psychologists call this, this notion of commitment. So we keep acting as if the plan were true, even though the world around us looks very differently than how we anticipated. And we make decisions and choices that no longer make sense because we've got to stick to the plan. So this notion of Sticking, sticking to the script, even though the world around us is constantly changing, is one of the big uh, dangers of, of planning. Hmm. So uh, I'm on board with you on that. Then we'll maybe dig a little bit deeper into this one because I am very interested in it. So I, I've always been a fan of the, the maxim, you know, people learn more by acting than by planning. And that's something that just I've subscribed to. You know, I believe in having a plan, yes, developing a plan, but that plan is very, very quick. It's, it's you know, on an eight and a half by 11, it talks about what I'm going to do this quarter or what I'm going to do this month, but it doesn't go into detail such as, you know, what are my competitors doing and what are their value propositions on their website or, you know, what does the market trend look like for the next 10 years or, you know, just a number of details that really get into the, the, the minutia of, 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 of planning. How do you deal with that in an organization where they value plans? Because I believe that, you know, the status quo is people value plans. If I was to go into an organization, I developed this, you know, 50, 60 page marketing plan. You know, I would probably get a whole bunch of nods from the executive team saying this is a great plan as opposed to if I had executed. So how do you what kind of advice do you give to people where, you know, they're they've been doing plans forever. They've been doing 50, 60 page plans and that's just how they've done it. And now, you know, you're saying maybe it's not a great idea. Uh, how do you help them through that? Well, uh, for, for starters, we start with that we can't judge the usefulness of information by how, how many pages, how voluminous it is. So you've got your 50 <laughs> right. or 60 page deck and we got to get out of that mindset that because there's more words and more pages and more work went into it, it must be better. So that's, yeah. that's kind of misnomer number one is we got to, we just got to get rid of that. Um, this, the second, the second idea is that you need to focus on better information as opposed to more information. So what the research shows us is when we're dealing with more complex questions and turbulent environments and, and change, we can actually focus on less information if we have more relevant information and get better results. So let me tell you exactly what I mean. We think there is a trade-off between what's called speed and accuracy. So if you want to move fast and quick, okay, you're, gonna, you're not going to do your 50 or 60 page PowerPoint deck and your, your big market plan. But if you really want the best answer, you want the most accurate answer, you're going to have to put in all of that homework. Hmm. That intuitively makes sense that you can't be fast and accurate at the same time. You need to make a trade-off. Well, what the research shows us is that the most successful companies are able to do both. And they're doing both because instead of trying to devote so much time and effort into planning for the uncertain world, so what is market demand going to look like in eight years? Who really can tell that? I mm -hmm. mean, there are so many different complex variables in that. So they're not wasting their time on that information. What they are doing instead is focusing on developing real-time information and processing it. So that's that kind of quick, quick experimentation reaction, experiment, reaction, and making these ongoing adjustments. So my advice is, instead of handing the 50 to 60 page plan or PowerPoint deck, talk to management about how you're going to be accurate and fast and able to adapt in this ever-changing environment by focusing on information that you can actually predict and control a lot more than what's going to happen 10 years, 10 years down, down the road. Huh, that's very interesting. So there's almost... Maybe it's not the right word, but maybe it might be the right word. But is it is it more about uh, like like improv sort of thing where you're really working not at the seat of your pants, but it's you're 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 a little bit more flexible. So does does almost this idea of improv come into it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have a whole section in the book that talks about the value of of improvisation. And when when we're saying improvisation, you're exactly right, Ryan. We're not talking about just go ahead and, and wing it and fly by the seat of your pants. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. Right. But what we are talking about is this flexibility to be able to adapt and adjust and get comfortable by building trusting relationships with people that you work with about how you can adapt and change, change on the fly. And so instead of committing to a plan eight years down the road with assumptions that, quite frankly, none of us really can figure out and – 
committing to doing specific things based off of those assumptions that we, we quite frankly don't know are going to be the best things to do anyway. Let's focus on experimenting in real time and learning and then making adjustments right away. Mm, I really love that point. And it's, it's a difficult thing for maybe people to grasp because it does go against convention. It goes against what people have brought up to do. You know, we've been taught to build these elaborate plans and you know, have your SWOT analysis and go through, you know, your six or seven strategies. And actually, it makes me it makes me laugh when I go and I look at strategic plans and there's, you know, eight or nine different strategies. And I'm like, how are you going to get all of this done in a year? You know, you have 12 months to get this done. You have nine strategies and you have limited amount of time. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. The whole planning thing has always bugged me. And it's been a, it's been sort of a thorn in my side. And uh, one of those things that I'm a little bit more adamant about, but when I read your book, I was I sort of didn't really stand up and applaud, but I was like, finally, someone's saying something, they're backing it up with some research. So, um, you know, now if people are sort of um, in that space where they're more a fan of taking action and not a very big planner or, or they're not a big fan of big plans or going ahead and doing these long, you know, arduous planning processes – Pick up the book and especially pay close attention to that chapter and and look at some of the details in there. And you might want to use some of those details as ammo uh, for your executive team if you're maybe more of a fan of action rather than planning. And if you're on that executive team, uh, let's get out of this belief that you got to produce a 50 to 60 page document, uh, no matter how faulty the information might be, to feel like you need to act. Because that's another big danger mm. of the planning is we can't do anything until we have this all figured out. So ah. let's go take a year and come up with a 10-year plan. And you know, meanwhile, the year's gone by and the world looks very differently than when you started. <laughs> that's exactly right. So just get going right now. I love it. It's funny, but it's it makes sense. It makes sense. But that's not how we act. It's, it's the funniest thing because you, you and I will talk here. We'll say people listen and say yeah that makes sense but then they step inside their office and all of a sudden it's completely different they're like oh gotta build my plan why is it that we think differently when we're outside the office than when we're inside the office it's one of the strangest things to me you know like for example i look at marketers marketers how we market um you know in the company it's not how we would respond if we come in our house and we say what would i respond to my answer would be completely different but when i go to the office i market like crap and i'm like why why do we do this it just doesn't make sense why we end up doing the complete opposite when we go into the office it just it, common sense just seems to be thrown out the window don't understand that well we're no longer we're no longer who we are we have different identities so at at home we're we're a consumer but at mm. work we put on our professional identities and they're shaped by by norms and if some other team is producing the 50 to 60 page plan we feel like we need to produce the same 50 Fair to 60 enough. page plan. Otherwise, it looks like we're sloppy and not doing our work. And that's, that's another manifestation of chasing. And we, we, need to, we need to eliminate that. We're wasting our time Very and true. making dangerous assumptions. Very true. Very true. In Golden Nugget number four, we talk a little bit about this idea of low expectations and how low expectations, they hurt relationships and they hurt ourselves. So there's really two things here at play. Um, so let's talk about the first one. Low expectations of others first. So what do you mean by having low expectations of others and, and how it can harm relationships? Can you talk a little bit about that? So much of human performance is a function of expectations. And I, I can't help but, but chuckle. I go back to when I was in the fifth grade, I had absolutely awful penmanship. Mm. And my teacher gave me an F in penmanship for the first three quarters. And she told me I would amount to nothing because my penmanship was so horrible. So you can imagine how excited I was in the fourth quarter when I did not get an F. I didn't actually get a grade. She didn't even think I deserved an F. Wow. And so, I mean, this really got me thinking about, about expectations. And there's a lot of research on what's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this basically shows how the expectations we set for other people become self-fulfilling. So... Now, I'm not quite quite old enough for this, but uh, you had the, the dunce cap in the 1960s. You would put the, the cap on the, the child if they were misbehaving, and the idea is you would shame them into improving their behavior. Mm. But, of course, this has the exact opposite effect because it sets very low expectations, and you know, they're, they're seen, as, they're seen as, a, as a dunce. So what research, everything from children to military organizations to businesses of all shapes and forms has shown is when you set – positive but credible expectations, you're able to elevate the performance of people by mm. having them rise up to the challenge. Mm. So uh, let's just say somebody is hired brand new. They're, they're new in the company 
and somebody tells you, hey, you know what, Scott, this person here, uh, you know, James, James is a real dick. All of a sudden now, you as Scott, you sit there and you say, wow, you know, maybe Scott is a dick. Or, or maybe James, James is a dick. And you start looking at James and maybe you start to look at his body language. You're like, yeah, you know, that, that's, that, that's his body language is a little bit questionable. And then maybe you start to talk to James a little bit differently. Maybe you start stop approaching him. And so maybe James just becomes more distant from you and it starts to validate that belief that you have. So those low expectations can really change how people, um, how you respond to people and how people respond to you. And maybe that's not something that we think too much about. You know, it's a lot of, you know, emotional intelligence there where, you know, how we react with people, how we act, how we uh, carry ourselves with people um, can be very infectious. Um, you know, do you have any research? Do you have any stories about that um, that you might be able to share? Yeah, and I'll tell you, one of the places I see this the most is I do a lot of work in organizational change. And you have these these same low expectations for for employees and you assume well okay we're going to, they're they're going to resist organize they're going to resist this change so well, what do you end up doing as a leadership team whether as a leadership team you end up hiding what's happening from your employees and then you tell them at the very last minute and their reaction is oh management doesn't trust me and they've kept me in the dark about this i had no idea they're trying to hide something i'm going to resist change so you have created the very resistance that you were trying to avoid by expecting people to resist. And this happens with, uh, you know, not just change, but it happens with, uh, you know, new people at work like you talked about. It happens when, you know, in subordinate supervisor relationships. Uh, so you, you observe someone coming late to work, and what happens is you don't have access to their situation. So what, it's what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. Mm. You assume that the reason why they were late or they did something bad is because there's something bad about them as a person. Mm. So they're irresponsible. Maybe they were out late, late last night drinking. They did something bad. You don't have access to the situation. Maybe they were stuck in traffic. Maybe there was some other thing. So we, we make these mental, these mental associations. But what's interesting about the fundamental attribution error is when it comes time to our own mistakes or failures, we're the exact opposite. We have access to our situations, so we start explaining away, well, we're late. Well, we might have been out drinking last night, but there was also a lot of traffic, wasn't there? And so because of this, and this is, this is something that we all do. I mean, this is a, a, uh, a, 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 a part of being human is that we, we assume um, you know, the, the worst in people when they, when they make mistakes. But the exact opposite also happens for, for good things. So when we observe someone, let's say a colleague gets a promotion at work, it's now not about them as a person. We start making up situational explanations. They got really lucky. They must have known someone. They had a connection. But when we get a promotion or something good happens to us, we're really smart and hardworking. Mm. <laughs> and so because of the way human psychology works with the fundamental attribution error, we have this tendency to set lower expectations for people than we really should. And that, that makes this, this problem of the self-fulfilling prophecy that much worse. So now let's stay on the same vein there. We're talking low expectations. So myself as, you know, Ryan Caligiuri, if I have low expectations of myself, um, you know, I, I maybe don't think I can do a good job. You know, I, I, I question my abilities. Obviously, that's going to impact my performance. Why, why is that the case? Like, what's the root cause? And, and how do we fix that? So if somebody in the workplace right now, they're thrust into a new management position and they kind of question themselves, can I, can I do this? Um, or they're given an opportunity, you know, like as yourself, you know, where, where you're doing lots of speaking engagements and they're thrust upon that and they say, hey, you know, you got to do speaking engagements. Now. You have to do sales presentations. Oh, man, I don't know if I can do that. It's, it's, it's a little scary. It's a little scary, Scott. I don't know if I can do that. You know, that's obviously going to impact our success, Right. Right, absolutely. And, you know, having, having self-doubts is something that's also a pretty uh, natural thing for, for most humans, humans to have. So what you can start doing is you can start thinking about similar situations where you were able to deliver and perform. So maybe this new project or this new line of work is a little different, but think about times when you were successful at doing similar types of projects. And that can gradually start shaping your expectations. You can also, of course, talk to other people because a lot of self-expectations are driven by how other people interact with us. So find someone uh, you know, where you were able to deliver something successful for them and, and talk 
talk through talk through with them about about your new projects and let them help elevate your expectations. Mm. Now, I should I should mention Ryan, there's an important caveat here which is there's a fine line between setting high expectations, positive expectations for ourselves and others and performance pressure. So if you you can't just go, you know, I'm I'm not going to go out there and say, uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and bench press 800 pounds because <laughs> I know that's just not possible. Mm-hmm. So what that does is if if you set expectations that are not credible, that are not believable to the target of those expectations including yourself, you're going to you're going to just see it as performance pressure. So you need to you need to have calibrated expectations that are uh, at mm. least in in your mind somewhat reasonable to achieve. Mm. You have to set realistic expectations. You know, if you're starting off you know, you've never done public speaking before and you want to go speak at, you know, Inbound Now or you want to go speak at South by Southwest. Like, well, you know, you're probably not going to go there. Maybe start with your local chamber of commerce or your association first. You know, just similar to your uh, your concept there of, you know, bench pressing 800 pounds. You're not going to do it. You know, it's probably not going to happen. So don't set yourself up for failure, which could, you know, then again, fuel that belief that I'm not good enough. No, you got to start slowly. You got to start small. You got to set realistic expectations. It's a great caveat there. I'm glad you brought that up as well. So in the last golden nugget here, golden nugget number five, you talk about the idea of injecting creativity into routine. And why do we want to do that? Well, you say that the reason we want to inject creativity into routine is to increase our chances of success or to bring more variety to our lives. So, you know, we all have routines, you know, whether it's going to work every single morning, I do the exact same thing every morning, I take the exact same route, you know, I, when I get in the office, I do the exact same thing. But you're saying inject creativity into our daily routines. Um, why do we want to do that, and how can we do that? Yeah. So we, we first of all, we t- we tend to think that a routine itself is this. You know, we, we always do it the same the same exact way. It's this very stable stable concept, whether it be personal routines or, or work routines. And where a lot of the research has gone in the past decade is is shown that even to do something routine requires a lot of a lot of creativity. So I want to I want to just get that mm-hmm. on the table. But what happens is when we when we start mixing things up and and doing things differently, we start experiencing the world in different ways. So as simple as like taking a new path to work, you might discover some new things about your city. Uh, it might provoke different types of reflection than you're used to reflecting because you're being stimulated by different environments around you. Mm-hmm. So the idea is what really separates people who are good at work and people who are, are great at work is that not only can they do the work, but they can do the work in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's what um, a lot of the, the research shows. So if we start doing things differently, we begin to broaden the approaches we can use to solve problems. And then we can take those approaches and we can start applying them to new and, and different problems. It also keeps us from, from getting stale. I mean, you know, a lot of the original work on routines talked about all of the, the monotony that it did. I mean, doing over and over and over the same, same exact things. And we know that's not very satisfying for most people. So if you can you know, do the same, the same type of work and get the same results, but try it in different ways, not only will you get rid of the monotony, but you might also start discovering even better ways of doing the same work. Mm. So for example, you know, if I'm, you know, I don't, I don't have kids, but if I was, if I had kids and I was packing their lunches every single day and it was the same routine, you know, make the sandwich, you know, put the drink in, put the banana or the apple in, you know, it's routine. I'm doing the exact same thing over and over again. But if I was to inject some creativity in that and I put maybe a different post-it note with a different drawing or a different quote on it every single day, that's a little bit of creativity. I take a different route to work, you know, to, to change things up a little bit. Um, maybe I go to a, my different Starbucks and I sit in Starbucks and listen to different conversations, see a different, different, different sites, hear different sounds. Um, why do I want to do that? What's the benefit of doing that? Is that like building a muscle where it's just you're, you're doing things differently and you're getting used to doing things differently? Like why, why do I do that? Yeah, so I mean, part of it is 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 you are improving your your competency. So the the muscle analogy is is really good, but you're also getting new experiences. So it it ties back to what we talked about the importance of getting that outsiderness in there. So you're diversifying your experiences by doing, even though it's the same work, you're beginning to do it differently. But you're also allowing for the chance for completely new ideas to evolve. So, you know, if take the simple example of the packing the lunch that you mentioned is, you know, maybe you end up substituting out a, 
you know, a roll for a piece of bread or something because you don't have any, mm. you don't have bread around there. And then you realize that your, your child actually really likes the roll better. So you're, you're, you're adding these differences into the routines that are allowing you to discover possibly new ways of doing the same work better. Mm. I love that. Absolutely love that. And, you know, when I, when I think about the, the overall message from your book, you have all the resources you need to be successful. It's, it's all right in front of you. You know, it's just a matter of really identifying it and prioritizing it. And, you know, instead of chasing what other people have, focus on what you've got to expand and go from there. And, you know, look at things like a newcomer, beware the pitfalls of planning and, you know, get creative with your routine. And to me, it's, 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 it's all a part of, of all a part of growing as an individual. And, you know, there's a point here in the book that, you know, I, I didn't pull out here, but it's, it's something that's definitely worth mentioning. And it's this idea of gratitude. And I think we've all heard this, but very few of us maybe put it into effect. But this idea of being grateful for what you have, the resources that you have, the people that you have in your life, growth all starts at gratitude. If you're constantly sitting there and saying, I wish I had this, or I wish I had this, I wish I was stronger, I wish I was faster, I wish I was smarter, you know, I wish I had this resource. It all comes from a place of gratitude. And when you're grateful for what you have, you'll find a way to make use of it. Maybe before we end off the podcast, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, so gratitude is, is this really powerful uh, process that not only you know, makes you feel good, but it also helps unlock the potential of what you already have because you recognize that you know, even though you don't think you have everything that you feel like you need to succeed – there's so much more. There's so much abundance right in front of you if you only pause to take a closer look at it and appreciate it. So when you're, gravi- when you're grateful, you're recognizing that, hey, look at all of these wonderful things that I have. And instead of hoping for more tomorrow or waiting for more to do anything, you can start acting on your goals right now. Appreciate what's already right in front of you and then find better ways of working with it to achieve what it is you want to achieve out of life and work. Mm. It's a great point to end on. And again, when you start that whole exercise of recognizing gratitude, um, like a muscle, you know, it'll take time to really feel that, you know, you'll recognize and be like, am I truly grateful for that? No, do it every day. Do it a couple times a day. And as you continue to do it, again, like a muscle, you'll become grateful and you'll feel better about it. And, you know, you will see things start to change for you. But this interview was awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. Again, that book is Stretch. Unlock the power of less and achieve more than you ever imagined. So, Scott, before I let you go here, how do people get in touch with you or how do they read more about what you're up to and what you're doing? Very simple to uh, either go to my website, which is www.scottsonenshine.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-S-O-N-E-N-S-H-E-I-N.com. Or they can follow me on Twitter at Scott Sonenshine. Perfect. Scott, thank you so much again. This interview was awesome. Really appreciate you coming on the show, man. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. All right. There we have it. That stretch. Unlock the power of less and achieve more than you ever imagined. Hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. It was really good having Scott on. Great guy. And I can't wait to get him back on the show again when he has a next book out. Anyways, if you enjoyed the show, then please don't forget to go online, rate and review the show. Whatever podcast platform you're listening on, go online, rate and review the show. Take a screen capture of that rating, of that review, and send it to podcast at ryancalajuri.com. And I'll make sure you get entered into the draw every single quarter for a prize. Don't forget, this quarter's prize, we're giving away either a Google Home or an Alexa. The winner, I'm going to email them and ask them which one they prefer. I'm going to ship it to them. Again, pretty easy. Don't forget, go online as well. Follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just search Ryan Caligiuri and you'll find me there. LinkedIn is where I'm most active. You'll see me doing things like prospecting and I'll be sharing some of my experiences, prospecting, doing marketing, thought leadership, things of that nature. If you're interested in connecting with me a little more, then please go online and uh, definitely find me on those uh, platforms. All right, this week's favorite uh, inspirational piece that I'm going to be using throughout the week to help keep myself inspired, keep myself motivated, and give me something to think about. This comes from none other than one of the greats, Jim Rohn. And I remember listening to this many, many years ago where Jim Rohn asks us these four very important questions. I'm not going to tell you what those questions are. You're going to have to sit and listen to hear what those questions are, but definitely take into consideration what Jim is sharing with us. Sit, reflect on it, and definitely um, make good use of it because Jim Rohn was a legendary man. He had so much to teach, and he helped so many different people. 
and these four questions that he asked, while very simple, incredibly profound. In any case, I hope you uh, sit back, enjoy this, and I hope uh, we'll catch you back here next week. Again, when I come back to you with a brand new book, Golden Nuggets, an interview with the author, and again, every single week I'm here just trying to save you a little bit of time. Have a great week, everybody, a productive week. I'll catch you back here next week. Love you guys. And now I'd like to leave you with these four questions called questions to ponder. These questions were valuable for me, and I want to make them valuable for you. Here's the first one, why? We all ask why we should work this hard, why take that many classes, why go to school that many years, you know, why take the notes, why read the books, why work that hard, why put yourself through the push-ups and the discipline, why, good question, why? Best answer to why, I think, is the second question, why not? Why not see how many books you can read, how many classes you can take, how many skills you can develop? Why not see how valuable you can become to the marketplace and to your friends and to your family? Why not see what you can make of yourself? Why not see how far you can go, how much you can see, how much you can earn, how much you can share? Why not? That's the heritage all of us have in America, especially is to see what we can make out of our lives now that we've been given this extraordinary opportunity. Now, my third question I'd love to ask you in person. But since I can't do it in person, I want to ask it of all of you. But I want you to take it personally. And my third question is, why not you? Why not you with good self-esteem? Why not you starting to change and setting goals? Why not you starting to make progress toward financial independence? Uh, if I can do it, you can do it. I wish I had a lot more testimonials here today besides mine. A whole steady stream that would come by and tell you their story. Someone who started with nothing, finally run a big enterprise. A mother who was on welfare, now she owns her own business. In addition to my story, I wish I had a lot more. And if all of them told their story, guess how they would probably wind up their story? They'd probably say, just like me, why not you? If we can read, you can read. If we can change, you can change. If we can figure it out, you can figure it out. If we can turn it around, you can turn it around. There isn't anything you can't accomplish. That's what those testimonials would say. And so I want to say it to you personally. Why not you? You've got the brains. You've got the, the stamina. You've got the vitality. You've got the interest. You've got your life ahead of you. You've got the future. You can do it. If anybody can do it, you can do it. If one of us can do it, hey, we all can do it. And now here's my last question. Why not now? This is a good time. As the 20th century starts to wind down a few more years as we get ready for century 21, what a good time to set your goals, work on yourself, work on your skills. What a good time to get it together. What a good time to start this process. Personal development, growing, changing, developing, having a good plan for your money and for your life and for your future. Why not now? And I hope I have a chance to see you one of these days and share with you the experience, the reaction, the response you might have had from my message today. And until I get a chance to see you on this side of the world or the other side of the world, in some school or some seminar, or maybe I'll come and speak for a company that you work for someday, I hope I get a chance to meet you. Until then, I wish you the best. I want all that I've gotten to be yours and much, much more. God bless. Goodbye.